This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Brendan Wesser, and this is New Books in Science Fiction. Today, my guest is Victor Manibo. He's here to talk about his debut novel, The Sleepless. Welcome, Victor. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Actually, I just said it was your debut novel, and now I'm I'm questioning that. Is this really your debut novel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, it is. It's the first one I ever finished writing, and it's the first one that ever got published. Ooh, that's exciting. Well, we're going to talk more about that in a little bit because I have some questions um, about the process of writing this book. But before we get started there, I want to say that I feel like the stars really aligned for this interview. While I was scoping out potential authors and books to review at Worldcon in Chicago just a, a few months ago, I found your book. And then an hour or so later, we met on the way to breaking stereotypes in Asian and Asian American popular media. And so I felt like this was meant to be. So I'm really glad that we could connect and make this happen. Yeah, it was really lovely seeing you in Chicago. And, you know, that panel that you were on is also an excellent panel. I learned so much and the audience, I'm sure, learned a lot as well. Um, And so now I'm happy that we can finally reconnect through this podcast. So great. So let's talk a little bit before we delve into your book. I'd love for you to give us a little overview in your own words of the book. So The Sleepless is a sci-fi noir novel set in a futuristic New York. Um, It's set in 2043. And in this world, uh, quarter of the world population does not require sleep and they don't suffer any physical or psychological drawbacks from that. They basically just have extra eight hours or so just being awake, being able to do whatever they want, right? And it because this world has changed significantly, there are a lot of 
kind of changes in the way people do things, in the way they relate to each other, and in the way that our systems work, like in terms of our economy, our government, our healthcare system. And it was that kind of what if, like what if people didn't require sleep that really helped me build this world out. Now, I did mention that it is a, a noir tale because at the heart of the book is a murder mystery. Our lead character is a sleepless person named Jamie Vega. He is an investigative reporter. And it, at the beginning of the book, uh, we find out that his mentor, his boss and mentor, dies in a mysterious death. And because he's a journalist and he can't help himself, he has to look into it himself because he doesn't believe uh, the NYPD when they say, oh, it was actually a death by suicide. So it's that murder mystery set in this sleepless world that the book is about. It's so fun that you called it sci-fi noir because I've been thinking about it like, is it a thriller? Is it a mystery? And then like sci-fi noir is in here. I've been calling it a thrillistery for a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um, because it has like one of the things I really love about it is it has this such depth to the world and depth to the characters that I don't always feel you get when it's really just a thriller. The It's more of the pacing and from here and here and here and here. Whereas you have, you've built this world that's very believable and our main character just has such an, a complex backstory. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, going back to um, where you started about, is it a thriller? Is it a mystery? I really wanted to have both the genres kind of strongly represented in this book. I grew up reading a lot of mysteries and I love the puzzle aspect of mysteries, but I also like the kind of more exciting, faster paced action of a thriller, and especially like a lot of sci-fi movies that I grew up reading or sci-fi movies I grew up watching and books that I grew up reading did have that kind of quicker pace. So so the book does have a mystery and thriller, and noir is kind of a more all-encompassing term for for the crime genre and, and the aesthetic that the book is going for. So so I think like in, in terms of categorization, I definitely uh, am trying to combine a lot of things in in one book. Um, but to your later question about you know the the complexity and the depth of um, our protagonist. The book is told in the first person from the point of view of Jamie. And when you read a story that's in the first person, it, or when you write a story that's in the first person, it does allow you to explore the integrity of that character a bit more and really delve deep into what makes them tick, what they're psychology is and how they feel and how they think and that's also something that I wanted to put on the page aside from the puzzle box mystery aside from the fast-paced action towards the end especially of a thriller because I think the the book and this world that I've built has a lot to do with people's individual relationships with their bodies you know the sleepless are 
experiencing a fundamental change to how their body works. And so there's a lot of exploration of that. And I wanted it to be something that was really examined from a lot of different angles. Um, sleeplessness also obviously changes the way an individual thinks about time and what their relationship is with time and how they use it. Um, and I wanted to explore that too in, in the person of, of this main character, our protagonist, Jamie. So it was really important to me to have a lot of interiority for this character. It might not be something that is typical for faster paced works, but like I said, I I am trying to blend in a lot of styles, a lot of genres, and a lot of tropes into this book. And I I, I feel like I've succeeded, and I hope that readers think the same. I'm really happy that you dove right in and claimed that first-person status, because I have to say, it's always controversial writing in first-person, I feel like. And... I read the first page and thought, oh, this is first person. What did I get myself into? <laughs> and, <laughs> I did. I think I may have even exclaimed it out loud. Other people in my uh-huh. household may have heard that. But yeah. as I was reading it, it it really did make a lot of sense from the, the character's perspective, from Jamie's perspective, this person who who doesn't sleep. So in a lot of ways, that first person, for me at least, ended up adding to that experience of like, this is how he's seeing the world and experiencing the world and relating that to us because no one else is going to do that. No one else has to do it when he's sleeping or because he's not sleeping. <laughs> so right. just, I, th- I think you won me over with kind of why, another reason why it made sense for him to be, to be telling this story in a first person. So good job there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I really wanted a sense of immediacy. I think that's something that first person can sometimes provide. And again, the interiority that I was talking about earlier. But but to your point also, first person can be difficult depending on the story that you're trying to tell. This is a mystery thriller. And with mystery, sometimes you do want to show other points of view sometimes you want a third person narrator to to like kind of situate other characters in relation to your protagonist or to leave other clues in other locations you can't really do that if your book is all in first person so i did kind of have to juggle the both the positive aspects and kind of the downsides of first person especially when writing a mystery thriller was there ever, like, can you think of a time when you were writing this that you're like, oh, I wish I could have somebody else, you know, point to this clue or point to this hint. It would be so much easier. Is there anything like that that sticks out in your mind? Oh, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, without um, spoiling too much, I, I did want there to be chapters or at least scenes toward the during the second or third acts of the book that were told from the point of view of Sid Thorpe. You know, she's a very critical character who has a lot of information and does a lot of things as well. Um, You know, takes a lot of actions and decisions that have consequences to the plot. And because I am fully in Jamie's POV, 
most of what Sid knows and what she does and why she does it has to be, you know, stated in dialogue to Jamie. Um, and it, it's all through that filter of dialogue, right? Um, I think Sid is one of my favorite characters in the book. I do have ideas about, oh, if I had been writing this in Sid's point of view, I think I would really mine a lot of interiority in this part or, or that part. But yeah, definitely some scenes with Sid, I think, would have benefited from me not doing first person all throughout. I love Sid too, so I, I'm right alongside with you. I think I I kind of like that we don't know as much about her as we might want to. So I can see how story-wise you could do a lot more, but I also, I, I kind of like it. Yeah, I, I think the way that I, I handled it was like, you know, I had to give her an air of mystique, right? So So at least that helps. Like, okay, well, we're not in her head. Um, we can't see things from her point of view, but at least I can portray her as this kind of mysterious, morally gray character. And and, and I still managed to enjoy writing it that way and you know, portraying her as seen through Jamie's eyes in that way was still very satisfying to me. I'm going to go back to something you just said about Sid, about morally ambiguous. And I feel like she's not the only character in this book. <laughs> uh, could be, we could use that term to define. Was that a, a choice on your part? Or was that more just based upon the characters and their backgrounds? Or what was your thinking behind that? I think with characterization, I always kind of want to to show characters with layers of complexity that you can't really describe them in like three words or you can't just let alone describe them as like a, a good character or bad character evil or moral or ethical i i feel like those descriptors can be a little limiting so I, it, it breaks down into what kind of decisions do they make in, in certain situations? Are they consistent or not with who they are and what their values are or what their expressed values are? And, you know, when you kind of break a character down into individual choices and decisions, uh, you will see that not everybody really acts in a consistent way, acts in a consistently moral way or a consistently evil way and that i think is what makes a character interesting because i myself as i'm writing these characters i'm like i think i know what this character is gonna do or how this character is gonna act or what they think in the situation but but i'm also excited about where my words can will take me in the moment you know what i'm saying and and i wish to convey that to the reader by by making these characters as kind of you know ambiguous as possible and i think you've done a good job especially with jamie one of the things that i i really liked i mean i i've liked a lot of things obviously i think i've said i've really liked things at least six times <laughs> but but one of the things that i i enjoyed about jamie is that we had enough of those choices through the internal dialogue and through his interactions that even as this kind of mystery or these you know multiple kind of puzzles and mysteries happened around him, we weren't quite sure 
his role in it, which I appreciated because you had built up enough backstory that I'm like, oh, I could totally see him doing X or I could see him doing Y, which just kept the story really fresh as you're reading it because there was a reason for him to do X or Y, but we just didn't know what he actually did. <laughs> right. And, you know, it, it's interesting how even as a writer, you know, I I obviously created these characters from my mind. And and it, when I asked myself, like, especially during the revision stages, um, is this something that Jamie would do? And I'm like, yeah, I think he could, but also maybe not. Because, again, he, he has so many forces acting upon him, right? Um, you know, just to keep it on a general level so that we don't spoil anything, like he has personal baggage, he has personal trauma, Right. And then he has this, again, a traumatic event that just happened. His boss and mentor died. Right. And then he has this um, physical, psychological trait that kind of distinguishes him from other people, which is that he is sleepless and most of the world is not. And then there's his individual relationships with all the other characters in the book. Like all those forces acting on him kind of can make him like say, okay, even if I have a kind of strict moral code, not that he does, but even pretending that he does, there are still so many forces acting upon him that could force him to make a decision, you know, going to the left or to the right or, you know, askew or in any which way. And it would still hopefully be um, believable, even though it's not consistent. And I think that kind of plausibility in terms of motivation, in terms of psychology, um, is what's really interesting to me in writing characters. And also what's interesting in like kind of setting up characters so that when they're faced with a decision, you yourself don't know like, oh my God, what are they going to do? Absolutely. And there were moments too of, you know, we t you talked a little bit about kind of merging tropes and breaking tropes. And there, you know, there was a, a moment where I'm like, oh, we're going full unreliable narrator. But then I turn the page, the digital page, and, <laughs> and you've addressed it head on because again, we have so much of this, of these motivations and this, this kind of information on Jamie that there is no need to kind of drag it out for multiple, you know, chapters or multiple parts of the book. It's like, ooh, we're going down this trope that I know. And then it's like, nope, no, we're not. Sorry, Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like, I love stories with unreliable narrators, but it's also something that I personally have consumed a lot of. And so uh, you, and I know a lot of readers have also consumed stories mysteries where like the you know you can never quite trust your narrator oh are they actually the killer who knows but that that's something that i think um a lot of people have have read and i'm like okay well i could go that way but also i could just deal with this head-on and try something else um i can always introduce the possibility that um jamie is unreliable as a narrator but only to the extent that everybody is unreliable when they're telling a story from their limited point of view, right? Um, so, so that's definitely what I was thinking about in in setting up at least some of the mystery elements and and how um, reliable Jamie's account of what's happening is. 
and you take that into into multiple ways too. So it's it's part of the world. Um, I don't think this is a spoiler because I have seen it in some other places referencing the book. But there are you know some memory issues. Um, and kind of exploring what that looks like in this world that's a, a little more a little further into the future than our own. So the technology is better or different, depending upon your point of view. So it's not just everything that's happening to Jamie. It's also kind of this tech perspective of what happens in a world where your memories aren't the same or you're losing your memories and how that can have an effect. So I like that you also cover it from kind of multiple angles that are that are different as well. Yeah, I was really interested in this. Well, you know, it, it was really coming from an anecdote about how, you know, nobody really knows, memorizes phone numbers anymore. Like everybody relies on their phones to 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 contact someone in an emergency you might not be able to call you know your best friend because you don't mem- nobody memorizes phone numbers anymore and and our reliance on technology as an extension of our memory is something that I wanted to kind of explore and and that was that really melded and blended in well with the story of the sleepless because uh, Jamie is you know obviously very into technology and he actually is someone who for a living records things records the truth or records facts because he is a reporter so those themes of of memory and committing things to a record and um, making sure that you have a factual or truthful account was something that I, I really wanted to explore and play around with. And 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 that's why, you know, the way some things unfold in the book unfold the way they do, because I wanted to say something about how, you know, how we think about things, how we relate to our own memory and how we kind of treat our technological, you know, our devices as almost sometimes like crutches. That is interesting. I mean, we have those conversations and in our house, you know, we're of a a generation that's a transition generation and and I many folks are too. But we are definitely, you know, to your point about memorizing phone numbers, you know, memorizing phone numbers because you were at a payphone in the middle of nowhere and, and you had right. a, a dime you found on the ground. <laughs> right. Versus, you know, do we really need to know people's phone numbers? When was the last time you actually called someone? Uh, because right. there are so many other ways to to communicate. So, but we do have those conversations on: is it is it a crutch, or mm-hmm. has have has our lives changed because of technology, or have like the more boring bits of our lives? <laughs> been offloaded to technology and I think that's you know interesting in terms of this book because you are exploring that like what have we offloaded what haven't we you've added in like little touches it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like we're you know 500 years in the future but it feels close enough that you know maybe I could see myself there or I could see you know my kids my, my, my one kid, maybe uh, <laughs> uh, other people's kids uh, in that future, because it's close enough. The technology is assistive enough, but it doesn't feel mostly it doesn't feel overwhelming. Right. And, and, you know, those are just the questions that I 
wanted people to be wondering about. Like, yeah, we have all of these devices that help us, but um, to what extent do they help us? And is this help necessary and beneficial in the long term or on a, on a grand scale? And aside from that, I also wanted to kind of explore how technology is part of kind of a capitalistic framework, right? Like these are devices that you buy. These are devices that you own. Um, but increasingly, people don't exercise as much ownership over their devices as they used to. When you buy a phone, you are tied to a carrier. You're also tied to, you know, Apple or Android and how they want to run the device. Um, People can't even repair their own devices if they wanted to. We are living in a world where everything is almost a a subscription model, right? Where you don't really own music anymore. You just pay for the right to listen to it. And the corporation can cut off your access anytime. So that was something that I also wanted to explore in the book because, okay, say, we have all these technologies, um, technologies that allow us to record things, technology that allow that help us to remember things, technology that we use for entertainment. But what happens when it's controlled by a corporate interest and what happens when it's controlled specifically by individuals who do not have the common good in mind? When I was reading this, the idea of the sleepless, it almost felt like an, a different take on immortality and, and not in the way that we tend to think about it, like vampires and living forever, because you know, the people who are sleepless in this book you know, are living out their normal lives, like their age spans haven't changed. But in a lot of ways, it's like all of a sudden their entire lives are in front of them. They don't need to rest, you know, six to eight hours or 10 hours um, a night. They all of a sudden have all this time. And you talk about, you know, what that means for having jobs, uh, what that means for, you know, being able to make more money because you can work more jobs. Or in the case of, you know, corporations, what that means for looking at a workforce. Or what does that mean when all of a sudden people who have too much time, like too much money, now have extra time to figure out <laughs> what to do with their right. their money and their extra time. So I think that that dovetails that idea of corporations and their interests really nicely in your story without being too heavy handed. Um, it's just this idea of if we think of corporations as existing, you know, in infinity, really, because it doesn't matter who's in charge. Well, now right. what happens <laughs> when your people are now almost immortal during their their existence on this plane? <laughs> right, right. And, you know, that was definitely something that I was thinking about in terms of what is sleeplessness? Yes, it's eight extra hours, right, in, in your 24 hours. But it, like you were saying, it, it, it's kind of a form of life extension. It's kind of a way to grasp at immortality. It's just, you know, a way of staving off death for a little bit longer. It's just that when you're sleepless, you do get extra time during, you know, the physical or even probably mental peak of your life, right? So you're not, you probably aren't living until you're 
150 or 200, but you, you, you effectively have a third of your life extended, right? And, and that was something that I, I was really fascinated by and how, you know, even in that kind of situation where you have this condition, sleeplessness that seems to be randomly distributed, right? It's still not going to amount to like a fair world just because there are already systemic inequalities in place, right? So what you were saying earlier about, well, when the powerful, when the rich also gain extra time, well, what what do they do with that? And what can they do with that? They can probably do a lot more um, than someone who is marginalized than someone who doesn't have power or wealth or resources. It's true. And it's a, a great framework to kind of explore that and the the problems that can come with that. Again, without being, you know, too heavy handed or without mm-hmm. being preachy, it's just this interesting thought experiment that you've created where we can think about it in a different way than, you know, we might think about it in our world, which is one of the great things about science fiction. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you said thought experiment, because th- this is really where it started. You know, I had a thought experiment. I asked myself, what if I didn't need to sleep? And then I just kept asking more and more questions and it became this like big thought experiment that I couldn't contain in my head and I needed to put it down onto paper. And then the next thing you know, I was writing a book about it. I love it. Wait, did you have any sleepless nights while you were doing this thought experiment? Like, was it keeping you awake at night that you had to get it out of your brain? No, but the funny thing is, um, the sleepless nights came after I wrote the book, which is like, you know, um, I had to revise it. I had to work against deadlines and um, I had to think about, you know, okay, how do I make this the best book possible? When it was just in my thought experiment phase and when it was just in my drafting phase, I was still just having fun with it. I was vibing with it. I was going where my ideas and my, you know, my emotions were taking me uh, because it was low stakes. I was doing it mostly for myself. I was thinking about it and writing it for myself. But then when the book sold, uh, when we had to start making it, um, you know, the best product it could be to be published, that's really when the sleepless nights came because now I'm like, oh, wow, I had to do all of this. I have to f- fix all of these things in a short amount of time. Joys of, of turning your your own joy into something that other people can, can consume as well. <laughs> and that, you know, the thing is like you, you kind of, that these people who, you know, will read the book are investing hours of their lives and their money, their hard-earned money on your book. And you want it to be as good as possible. I mean, the story in my head and the story in my drafts folder, it's good enough for me. But, you know, if I'm presenting it to the world, I I wanted it to be good. My editor was very helpful in making it the best possible story it could be. And, you know, it was a lot of work and a a lot of sleepless nights, but I was was more than happy to do it. And looking back, I, you know, I, I, I would say that it was you know, time and effort well spent. Excellent. Excellent. So curiosity, 
when you were having this thought experiment, was it before the COVID pandemic, during, after? Oh, this was three years prior to the pandemic, two, two and a half years. I started the draft in November of 2017 for um, National Novel Writing Month, uh, NaNoWriMo. And uh, as you might know, it's 50,000 words in one month. That's that's a lot of words. And I was like, okay, I, I viewed it as a challenge. I have this idea. Let's do it. So I did it. And that was, yeah, late 2017 before um, the 2020 pandemic. The story happened to have a pandemic in it, and I didn't know that at the time that I drafted it. So by the time that the pandemic hit, I was already in the process of revising it and querying agents with it. And that was a really interesting experience, to say the least. So... Am I right to assume that this is the first pandemic that you have lived through? Yes, 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 it is. <laughs> so there is, there, there is a question. There, are, there's like a point to these questions. I'm curious. So after reading the book and you know touches of pandemic, right? Because they're um, more in the post-pandemic side of this, um, uh-huh. or what they thought to be was a pandemic. And I'm curious because as I was reading it and and kind of post-COVID uh, world, I was thinking, wow, they moved really fast through their pandemic time and really fast into building this world. Looking back on kind of the timeline you put in the book, do you kind of stand by that now that you've kind of you yourself have experienced <laughs> a pandemic. Um, do you kind of stand by that timeline? Do you think you would make some shifts in how, you know, and how that happened in the book? Or you're like, nope. Well, the direct answer is yes, I do stand by it. But I have to say, I I was revising this, like I said, during the pandemic. So I did learn a lot about the government's responses to the pandemic, you know, the public's responses to the pandemic. And I, I tried to weave in those, you know, factual things that were happening around me um, into the book. In terms of the timeline, in, in The Sleepless, the events of the book opened 10 years after the pandemic of sleeplessness. And you're right. It, it, it's like, they're they're they've kind of normalized and i feel like at least for this uh, sleepless pandemic it was easier for them to kind of bounce back because it wasn't a fatal disease and it was a disease or condition that really presented some tangible benefits so i think it was easier for the world to wrap its head around what was going on and to adjust to accommodate um, the new reality for a big segment of the world. You know, I, I, I also really didn't want to set it too far out into the future because I do want the story to be a little accessible, like you were saying earlier, in terms of like technology and um, people's relationships with technology and making that a little more relatable is is going to be difficult the farther out I am into the future. 
Absolutely. That's every science fiction writer's nightmare at the moment. How far uh-huh. can we imagine into the future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have a question about uh, the cover art. I mm-hmm. love the cover art. It's striking. Um, it was done by Dana Lee, which is, uh-huh. it was one of the reasons I was drawn to the book. I know, don't judge a book by its cover. It's such a cliche. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but I love that the eye motif Um, It's Mm -hmm. like this closed eye motif and it was used in the chapter headings. And I was curious, like, did you have any input into the cover or reusing that motif or what, was it just like, wow, this is amazing and it fits and let's use it everywhere we can. (laughs) So I had input into the cover to the extent that they, the publisher presented me with a couple of options and um, the cover that is on the book right now is the one that everybody gravitated towards. It, you know, the cover as it is, it's very striking. You can see it from a mile away, and there is kind of a progression. There is kind of a story going on in just like basically six little icons, right? There is, you know, kind of a beginning, middle, and end. You know, the closed eyes, the open eyes, and the wide open eyes, right? So I love that about it, um, and the team did too. Plus, the way that it's stylized, you know, it's neon, it's purple, it's kind of got this graininess and, and all those textures that you associate with, you know, cyberpunk settings. So so I think all of those elements coming together made me really respond to it and say, okay, if this is the cover I want, and I'm lucky that the rest of the team who whose input was solicited also felt the same way. Dana Lee did an excellent job and you know, you can't see it right now, but I have a neon sign inspired by this book cover that are just like the eyes. And I, I made that like, you know, I had that custom made because I'm just so in love with this cover. Well, and it, it's it's so fun that you said that too, because the way that it's styled, it does remind you of like neon lights. Uh-huh. Um, neon lights for you know at night for folks who aren't sleeping. Yeah, and and you know to your point about the internal art, like I wish I could say that that was my idea, but no, that was the idea of the folks at Arrowon. When I saw the proof pages and I saw that they did that art for to designate the specific parts of the book, part one, part two, part three, I was like, oh my god, that is brilliant. Yeah, I I loved it. It was just like such a joy every time I saw it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I don't know. There's yeah. something about it. It's so simple, but I loved it every time I saw it. I'm like, yes, there it is again. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I feel the same way. Ah, oh, that I love it. Art just bringing everyone together, both the the visuals and the writing. There's nothing like it. Yeah. I do like that you gave the nod to cyberpunk because who doesn't like cyberpunk? I mean, uh, my book has been called by some people as cyberpunk and like, I love cyberpunk and it's my favorite, one of my favorite like subgenres because it combines again, the, the noir richness um, uh, of the aesthetic and also the big science fiction questions. Right. But also in a world that's kind of, not too far into the future and is very relatable to the now and also interrogates questions about capitalism and our relationship with government and institutions and technology right and and so a lot of those same like 
threads are are in this book. I think the only thing that doesn't make my book specifically cyberpunk is that it's not heavy on the cyber parts, not heavy on, you know, going on the internet or the metaverse or like connected networks and all of that. Um, but the sleepless does share a lot of DNA with, with cyberpunk for sure. And, and that was very intentional because I was very heavily influenced by that subgenre. You can feel it too. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it cyberpunk. Just like I wouldn't call it a thriller or a mystery. Mm-hmm. It's like a thrillistery cyber town. I don't know. Well, I'll think of something. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I am really trying to juggle a lot of things with this book. Um, just bringing in all the things that I enjoy and all the things that I, I, I like from from books and movies and TV shows. And, you know, if it doesn't neatly fit in one specific box, I'm, I'm happy with that as long as I'm having fun and hopefully the reader is having fun along with me. You know what? I, I put my finger on it. So the thing that I think distinguishes part for me of cyberpunk is usually you know, back to the tropes, um, there's usually like that seedy element, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes there's a very, very seedy and we fall into um, bad stereotypes um, Mm -hmm. and we fall into, you know, all kinds of, you know, not, you know, not savory elements. But because back to what we were talking about before, the moral ambiguity, it's more of just like, that's just how people are. You manage to stay away from those you know, any type of stereotype and, um, and that seedy element, like, yeah, sure. There are things that like, should they really be doing that? Is that the best idea? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there are, there are drug dealers in this book and there are, you know, scenes in like, uh, uh, you know, a rundown motel or scenes at like, you know, a, a, a mega club where everybody's doing drugs. And like, there, there are like, CD elements it's I would say that it's not the you know predominant aesthetic of the book for sure but it's also it's there um and that's also one of those things that I'm like oh yeah you know I I love cyberpunk I want this to be a little bit cyberpunky so like we gotta have certain scenes in certain locations and like certain kinds of characters because I like that yeah yeah, but they're different and they're good. I like it. I was, I was very, I, you know, as a, I'm gonna age myself here, but as someone who remembers, you know, going to maybe raves, mm-hmm. in, you know, <laughs> random mm-hmm. places, buildings, I can relate. Outdoors, yep. Mm-hmm. Like yep, maybe, yep, yep. You know, if you thought about it, maybe not the best idea. You know, but right. it's, but it's not, you know, this, you know criminal deep like you know <laughs> element right. it's, you know it's just somebody had a warehouse and was like come on over <laughs> yeah exactly and just crazy stuff happens yeah exactly and nobody judges you just you know yeah you wake up the next day saying should i do that again probably not <laughs> probably not could have died but you know <laughs> thankfully i didn't yeah so i do so i appreciate that you get like the the fun of that element without um without the the dark elements that people feel the need to throw in. Like they've never been somewhere they thought maybe they shouldn't go. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I did save the darkness for, you know, the grief and the trauma aspects of the book, I think. That's true. There there is a lot of grief and trauma. (laughs) 
but there's a lot of sweetness too, which I appreciate. So, um, to really, you know, lovely, sweet moments, um, within those personal relationships, I almost just thought about saying it, but I'm not going to, because I just think they're so sweet. I want people to find them on their own. So there, there's definitely some sweetness in them. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. And, and, you know, I, I really wanted that kind of balance. It, it can't be all pain. What? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, if Sandman has ca- taught me anything, it's, it can be all pain. <laughs> Well, I would like a little bit more balance than that. All right. Well, I think you have managed that um, with this book. I, Like I said, I had a, a, a wonderful time after those first few paragraphs in first person, and I strapped in for the ride. I had a wonderful time reading this book. Um, I am so pleased that we were able to connect and pull this together. Thank you so much um, for agreeing to come on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. This is such a fun conversation. I barely noticed the time. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. Again, I've been speaking with Victor Manibo, um, author of The Sleepless, which came out in August 2022 from Erewhon Books. So pick that up if this is interesting for you. If you've enjoyed today's chat, I invite you to subscribe to be the first to know about new books in science fiction. I'm Brendan Wesser, host of this week's episode. Our theme music was composed by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Rob Wolf edits the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, with Leanne Wilson as co-editor. Thank you so much for listening, and take care.